I don't know if you got a, a, a bulletin tonight or a little program. It kind of gives you a little bit of an outline. I encourage you if you want to uh, jot some notes uh, as we go. Just have a few thoughts that I wanted to share tonight. We've been in a series uh, called We Are One, celebrating the fact that we are one year old uh, as, as a, um, at least an incorporated church, but also um, we're celebrating what we see God doing in us and through us. And so uh, we've looked at um, having a, a hope, uh, one body, but tonight I want to talk about being one, particularly in mission. Uh, it was in the late 1800s that the, um, the, no one um, paralleled the, the dominance of the, either financially or politically, of the railroad industry. And so the railroad barons sort of ran things because they were kind of the biggest game in town. Uh, but one of the things that they missed along the way was the development of the automobile. And so they looked at this, and having already invested all of this into the infrastructure, they looked at the automobile industry as not part of what they do. And what they ended up doing was they missed an opportunity because they kept defining themselves are, we're in the train business when they're actually in the transportation business. I'm just curious how many tonight rode the train to church and anyway i'm just curious how many found a car on your way got in a car and came to church tonight there was an opportunity missed time went on and uh, the railroad has kind of gone by the wayside it wasn't too long after that uh, that the swiss who were dominating 90 percent of all revenue in the watch industry, watches and clocks, they had precision down to a science where they would have gears and springs and sprockets and they had it down and they were the leader till one day a Swiss man, one of their own kind, come to them with an idea, with an alternative and it was something called the quartz watch and it had an LED flashing indicator on it to which they passed because it had none of the same mechanisms. Now, the Swiss, while they still make a really good watch and a clock, hold only about 20% of the market today. Again, I think it's another illustration of a company who was leading but forgot what business they were actually in. Maybe another illustration of this same idea was Sports Illustrated magazine. I don't know how many of you grew up with Sports Illustrated. It was kind of the sports magazine today. But if Sports Illustrated magazine would have seen themselves as being in the sports information business and not in the magazine publication business, we wouldn't have ESPN. We'd have the Sports Illustrated channel. My point in bringing this all up is that I think, particularly for the church, it's very easy to lose sight over what business we're actually in. Because to each of us, if we were to poll everyone here tonight, I think we could each articulate what is and isn't meaningful about the church. What the church has done well at and what the church hasn't done well at. What the church should concentrate on and what the church has no business talking about. But... It's important for us to talk about what is the fundamental business, if you will, of the church. Or maybe the language I'm choosing to use is the mission of the church. It would be very easy to somehow speculate that the business of church is gathering together. Or the business of church is attending a worship service or attending a small group. The business of church is building bigger buildings so we can attract more people. 
To which I would say those are all part of the things, but that doesn't simply define the mission. Maybe the best way I can kind of hint at the mission is to look at the parting shot of Jesus. The last words that he offered out when he said, go ye therefore into all of the world. It's kind of funny when you spend so much money on railroads and infrastructure and train depots and destinations, it's hard to let go of that infrastructure and think, no, we're in the transportation business. We're into getting people from here to there. And they missed an opportunity. Sometimes I wonder if the church spends so much time developing programs or building bigger buildings that they've missed the mission that Jesus came and said, actually, I'm more interested in how many go out than how many come in. So the church, the mission, has to be about the inspiring and the equipping and the sending so that we can be in line with what I think the business we're actually called to be in. (coughs) Excuse me. So what I want to talk a little bit tonight is this picture of Jesus as, and the church as a sending agent. Now, there's one missiologist. He's an author and a speaker. Uh, his name is Alan Hirsch. He kind of writes in one of his books, many books, he talks about the Missio Dei. The Missio Dei is what one of these long recovered doctrines or theologies of the church, and it simply means the mission of God. The word missio comes out of the Latin meaning sent sent of God. So when he talks about the mission of God, the missio dei, what he's talking about is at a very fundamental level, the nature of the church is to be sent. So since the church isn't made up of buildings or programs, the church is made up of individual lives. To be a Christian is to be one sent of God into the world, presumably to show that there's a difference, to show that God, in fact, is real, loves, cares, is present in real tangible ways. So what I want to talk about is the sentness of the church, because that, I believe, is the mission. Um, And so God is fundamentally a missionary God. And what God does is he takes his son and he sends his son into the world. And so Jesus arrives in the world as both a missionary God and a sent one as a missionary. And since Jesus and the Father are one, they together send the Spirit into the world. So inherent in the heart of God is the sending capacity And so if we find Christ in us, we have to understand that whatever we do for our day job, part of what we get to do, part of what we're commissioned to do, invited to do, is to go into the world with a kind of message, a kind of mantra, if you will, that the the nature of God is real, he cares and he loves. And so Jesus says the words, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Every Christian is simply a sent one. There's no such thing as an unsent Christian who doesn't get to participate in the eternal purposes of God and a relatively to extreme broken humanity. It's how we choose to walk alongside that brokenness and reflect maybe a hope and a promise. My prayer for Mission Hills is that we would become people of hope and of justice and of mercy. I like how one guy said it this way, it's not so much that the church has a mission, it's that the mission has a church. 
You might wonder, or maybe you haven't, how we got the name Mission Hills Church. I tried long and hard to come up with a name for a church. I asked lots of people. I Googled lots of things. It was really hard. Um, the more I tried to apply myself, I felt like I was trying too hard to sound like a hipster church. Uh, it was just getting worse. And, um, but then uh, I, I, I kind of combined some things. It was sort of an amalgam because um, if you have looked at our website, if you know anything about us, you know that um, we have a phrase that says practice is the new deep. And so I wanted to have a community that could um, be more defined or as defined as not just in our coming together, that is when we're gathered, but in our being scattered and going out. It's our rhythms that would be a set of shared practices that would allow us to be the church whether we're gathered or whether we're scattered. Not just go to church, but in, embody what Christ's message was. And so it's things like generosity and hospitality and renewal and, and, um, and community and compassion uh, and gratitude. <coughs> Excuse me. And so I wanted us to be able to have something. And so when I thought mission, that speaks to what we're about as a community of practice. Not just a community of doctrine, although doctrine's important. I wanted to do something that embraced the practice. And the hills was sort of uh, an embodiment of the hill country of Austin. Something that was part of the calling. As we were unpacking what God was doing in our lives, I felt like it was unique to what God wanted to do in this area. And how do we love Austin well? Um, there's broken places all, all around the world, but there was parts that I think we could be a part of bringing maybe a little heaven on earth where hell on earth already exists. So I wanna do a couple of things. I wanna set up a little bit about this idea of sentness and there's a couple of passages. If you have Bibles, there's some in the Puracs. I wanna look at Acts chapter one real quick. There's a single verse and then I wanna work, work our way through a couple of the passages in the early church because this is in the formation of what God intended. And so Jesus in the initial post Jesus era, you're looking at the early followers and saying, well, what did they do? And it says that a great persecution broke out among them. Uh, and uh, in Acts chapter one or eight, verse one, it said a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, what's interesting about this is that the word apostle means sent ones. And it says that all of the uh, disciples were being scattered except the apostles were still in Jerusalem. They're still in the establishment. They're the only ones to have not left home base. To which I would say, it becomes largely inconvenient and largely uncomfortable when we are called to go to new and unfamiliar areas. I think it requires so much emotional energy to go to a new church or to step into a new environment or to begin a new job. And so we try and maintain the status quo as much as we can. Except here these sent ones, these apostles who have been with Jesus are being sent out. There's a persecution, everyone's scattered, except they're still in Jerusalem. Again, it becomes very hard for us to want to shake what's familiar, even if what is familiar doesn't feel good, doesn't feel healthy. God is always trying to light a fire under us to get us to go out as messengers of something that has impacted or affected our lives. And so right at the beginning, this, this picture of sentness isn't taking place. 
<laughs> and so then if you go a little further and you go down to Acts chapter 11, just a couple of chapters later, um, we start to see a new work outside of the establishment. And it says the church in Antioch. And now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, uh, who had been martyred, uh, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus and, uh, to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of peoples. And the disciples were, for, were called Christians first at Antioch. No coincidence, right? Finally, the mission of church starts to get some traction. The wheels start moving, and it's not in the establishment. I had this argument with this friend. It's not an argument as in a contentious relationship. I was born and raised in San Francisco. He was born and raised in San Jose. And together, those areas, along with a bunch of other regionally, it makes up the Bay Area. But if you are from the area, you often hear people refer to the city. And I know that sounds kind of snobby and arrogant, but it's just the city. Um, and so we still refer to it as the city. Well, while I was working with him, and mind you, he's a real estate developer, I would always refer to, oh, I'm going into the city tonight, or oh yeah, we were in the city this weekend with my folks, and he'd go, you know, San Jose is bigger, both geographically and population-wise. What would San Francisco be without San Jose? And he sort of had this little uh, ax to grind. I was saying, well, what would San Jose be without San Francisco? I, I mean, seven square miles. At some point, you've got to expand somewhere. I think all those people would still be living in San Francisco if there was room. But he had this sort of contentious relationship with the city. And I <clears throat> revisited a conversation with him recently, and he's asked me, you know, how's Austin going? And tell me about Austin. And with this sort of pride, I said, well, you know, there's a lot of momentum, you know, everyone's rating it as this best place, the secret's out about Austin, and I said, you know, one of the biggest growth areas is in the social media area, and if you go to social media conferences, and they talk about this is kind of the hub of all startups of social media, does anyone want to disagree with this? I, it just feels like this has the most traction, to which he says, oh yeah, well, I mean, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they're all in San Jose. Like, he wants to argue about this. I'm like, establishment, buddy. The new wave is Austin. And I'm sorry about San Jose and your Bay Area, but you can stay there. Just stay there. Like, right, we're just going to agree to disagree. And as a homegrown kid, I felt like I could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. What does that have to do with this? Other than the Jews had this idea that they had a corner market on God. They had the monopoly on God, and they were the chosen ones, except they weren't the chosen ones to be sort of a container of it. They were supposed to be a vehicle for it. And they were waiting for something magical to happen in Jerusalem. They were waiting for this new kingdom to arrive in Jerusalem, and God wanted to do a new work. And the only way he could do a new work is to create a new wineskin. And so what does he start doing? allowing for this persecution so people are scattered and they're going into all the world telling the message. 
not that they're getting beat to a pulp, but of the hope and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they get to Antioch and a new hub, kind of the new Austin, if you will. The, the new Silicon Valley emerges and people are now being sent out. And that's a good thing because central to what it means to be a Christian is to be sent, and central to what it means to be a church is to be sending people out. The measure of a great church isn't just how many come in, it's how many go out. And so this, this idea of what is the role of church in society has led to a lot of discussion and a lot of debate going on today. In fact, I would argue, and some of you might have heard me share some of this before, but when we come through the, um, the, the, the election cycle and we see sort of the outrage, we have a lot of people who are looking to government to be a great social service provider. Except that I think what we've lost sight of is what the role of the church is in society to care for the least of these. There was a book that was written, I referenced this a couple of weeks ago, called Resident Aliens. It was actually written almost 30 years ago. Um, I read it probably about 15 years ago, and I've just been reminded of some of the passages in it. And in it, these two guys who uh, were at Duke University, and they're writing with a really good um, insight into what's happening around culture. And this was in 1989 that they wrote this originally, but they describe a, a different kinds of churches that have expressed themselves within our society. And the first kind of church they describe is what's called um, an activist church. Now, you might be familiar with this. An activist church is going to um, most readily identify what are the societal problems, what are the systemic sins that are going on in our culture. And if the culture feels strongly about things, then we're going to align with things. So what does that mean? If black lives matters to the world, we're going to align with black lives matters. If racial or, or marriage inequality matters, we're going to align with racial or marriage inequality. If there is racial um, discrimination, we're going to come alongside and that's going to matter to us. And the whole point is that if it matters to the world and it matters to us, then they'll see and know God matters to us and to them. So if it matters to God, they matter to God. And so that's been largely the approach. And I would say this, it sounds really good at a distance, but the problem is this, is that it tends to pick and choose certain um, issues, um, kind of a, a cause du jour, if you will, an issue du jour. Um, uh, causes and issues kind of come in, in sort of waves, and it tends to leave a lot of other things um, neglected. The other thing that happens is that um, in the activist church, there's not a lot of personal responsibility or personal accountability. Maybe uh, because it simply gets too personal. And so, again, it looks good on the outside. Now, I would say it this way, um, uh, maybe just for an example, you think <clears throat> nuclear proliferation is bad, but what about the nuclear family? I think in, it seems like most every metropolitan area has a homeless price, uh, crisis going on within it, and the idea of sanctuary cities. Um, but I think the Bible has something to say about the nature and the, the fabric of the nuclear family, which has just been eroded. And I think these things are connected, but both of these issues are equally important. So then he paints a picture of, a, oh, well, and let me just say this, Mother Teresa had described America as the poorest country in the world because she simply defines 
um, the, the nature of being poor as um, not material wealth, but relational wealth. And she's, you know, if relational wealth is the acid test, then America, she would indicate, is at the bottom. We are really connected people, except that we're really lonely. We have a, a, a facade that we post on social media, except that we feel very estranged from our own kin. There's a kind of brokenness, and we have profit at the expense of others. And so, again, this is, a, this is a good model, but it has its limitations. Now, on the other extreme, these guys indicate that there's a second church, and maybe some of you grew up in this church. It would be called the Conversionist Church. And the Conversionist Church, sort of at the expense of what's going on in society, makes, personal, makes sin about a personal choice and admitting personal guilt and coming to a reconciling relationship with God. And the Conversionist Church pushes to admit that personal guilt and reconciliation. But, and here's where it comes up short, it remains quiet on other things like environmental degradation. It, it, it doesn't really speak to the racial uh, issues and, the, and, some of the, um, and some of the other government corruption and corporate greed and economic inequalities. So you have one model that's sort of either or, right? It's an um, and and the matter, the, this matters because most of us are putting so much stock in these two systems. Either it's the government's fault or it's individual responsibility. And what they come along with is kind of a third option. Are these our only two options? It might be how you felt in this election cycle of, are these our only two options? Could I, could I choose, you know, for a, a viable third party? And this is where he says, so... Um, he says, our calling doesn't change just because of the inauguration. And just like it didn't in 2008 or 2000 or 1992, it's still the same. So the activist church is falling short because it doesn't account for personal, moral, spiritual responsibility. And the con conversionist church is falling short because it doesn't address the systemic problems that are going on in our society. So he paints a picture of a third option, which he calls the confessing church the Confessing Church. Um, and he actually goes back to site in, in Germany, Nazi Germany in the 30s, where Karl Barth wrote a piece. And this created a lot of discussion within Europe, uh, within the church, um, because there was sort of the stir. Germany had sort of recovered from World War I. They had recovered to now, you know, the in, uh, their their uh, unemployment was going down. Jobs were on the rise. They had reestablished their national pride. Shouldn't we just go along to get along? Shouldn't we just sort of embrace this, sort of a Germany first kind of mindset? To which Karl Barth addresses, and he says, we are called to offer a radical alternative to both of these models, activist and conversionist, that is global, not national. One that will challenge all the power structures and also align with the power structures. The confessing church views sin as both personal and societal. So what he says is most important though, the models of this church, uh, uh, the main task are not just the transformation of hearts or the modification of society, but rather the congregation's decision to worship Christ in all things. So what does that look like? 
What does it mean for us to worship Christ in all things? See, we seek to be the church that's clearly visible whether we're gathered or whether we're scattered. We seek to be the church. So when it comes to being faithful to the promises of God, whether it means caring for the least of these, if there are vulnerable among us who come from a foreign land because they've been abused or oppressed, then, then it's our role then as Christians, not as Americans, to simply care for the least of these. The heart of God is always towards the most vulnerable in society. Back then, it was to the widows, to the orphans, and to the aliens. You could make, you could make a strong case for what those categories look like today, but it's why we want to be able to not just give help, but it's also why we want to receive help. It's why we want to raise disciples, not just church attenders. It's why we want to be people who can give hope to marriages that are just struggling. It's why we want to be able to go outside of a comfort zone and offer ourselves personally simply to meet a need. Not because it's going to solve an issue, but it might resensitize our hearts and simply give hope to one more. And again, I would say, when we make ourselves available, it always creates a sort of inconvenience, a discomfort when we say, I, I want to express faith beyond just church attendance. I want to express faith in real tangible ways. We've been doing a campaign called Have Two, Share One. And what we said is, it's not that the haves don't care about the have-nots. It's that for the most part, we don't know them. Our lives don't intersect. They don't actually live in my neighborhood. Now, their needs are different. Um, no one's going hungry in my neighborhood. No, no, no one's cold in my neighborhood. But how do we intersect our lives with meet and meet needs in a way that gives evidence to an eternal hope? This is really significant. Maybe the best example of this is the example of Daniel. If, if you are familiar with the story of Daniel, chapter one of Daniel takes place right after the Israelites have been conquered. Now, this is God's chosen nation, right? These are his, his preferred people. Well, this was the one he chose to work through, but they were sort of containing God and breaking covenant. But what he does is when he captures them and has them in captivity, he redeems it. And what happens is, in what we see in Daniel chapter 1, in the third year of the reign of uh, jo Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That kind of stinks. Uh, I mean, if it's you and you think, I'm chosen by God, all of a sudden we're a conquered land. Well, what does a conquering nation get to do? they get to absorb you into whoever they are. So you no longer have your national identity, your identity is ours. And what does he do? Then he ordered Asaphenes, the chief of his court officials, he puts together his cabinet and he says, and he brings some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. For the young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned him a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And he trained them for three years so that they would be ready to go into the king's service. 
Let me just paint a picture. It goes on to describe that then they changed their names. And Daniel, along with three other guys that you might be familiar familiar with, known as um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was that story about a fiery furnace way back when. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den that came up later in the book of Daniel. What is so significant about this is it paints a picture of these three kinds of church. We're not called to be in and of the world. The conversionist church is neither in nor of. We're called to be a confessing kind of church that is both in and of, in, 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 in but not of, excuse me. And so what we have in Daniel is someone who gets drafted into the king's service, not the king of his nation, the king of the conquering nation. So he's an Israelite. Now he goes into full devotion into the king's service of Babylonia. And it says that he learned the language and the literature better than the Babylonians did. So he got so immersed in Babylonian culture, so fluent in their ways, and yet what we read later in the book is that when push came to shove, he wouldn't bow a knee. That's why he ended up in the lion's den. So we have in the picture of Daniel a wonderful picture of what it means to be salt and light. To be light in dark places. To walk into where hell on earth exists and to be heaven on earth as a child of God, as a Christian, as an ambassador of a hopefulness, we get to interrupt the broken reality, even though our lives remain in a broken, needy state. Daniel doesn't get delivered and gets sort of a pass from being a captive. He gets drafted into the Lord's service. And can you imagine what it was like to be part of his peer group? Now, they picked the cream of the crop. I mean, these were sort of the best-looking Ivy Leaguers, I guess, in our contemporary context, right? If there were sort of bubblegum baseball cards, it would be of these guys. And, And the king just gets to have the pick of the litter with all of the ones. And he says, these guys are in my service now. And then he takes it a step further. We're going to give them a new name, which is like saying we're going to give them a new identity. You want to talk about a sellout? I mean, think about it if you were in Daniel's youth group and be like, oh, Daniel, Belshazzar, I know you. You're one of us, but now you're sitting there, you big sellout, you're in the king's service. Daniel remained dedicated to the Lord, even though he learned the culture and the language and the literature better than the Babylonians did. This is what our calling is, is so that we can be deeply immersed, deeply in the world, but when push comes to shove, we don't bend a knee. The reason we've created rhythms is so we can have the most practical way that we can express faith. I like to think of it as four things why I wanted to come up with these rhythms, and they're listed on your program tonight, but I think fundamentally, they help us experience God in a personal way. We are all recipients of God's hospitality, God's generosity, God's compassion. When we start to understand these are manifestations of who God is, it helps us understand it. But here's what it does. When we begin to practice who God is, it actually becomes formative for us. That's why we say, we joke, practice, it's the new deep. Otherwise, we're just a church like a gym who wants to come out because we like the sport drinks and the workout clothes, but we're not actually breaking a sweat. And so what I'm saying is for us to walk in the image of a savior, we have to have 
a practice. So how intentional are we able to be? The other thing it does is it gives us at least seven ways to be able to share our faith and to articulate our faith. Most people I know don't want to engage in any kind of conversation because they feel like they're going to not be the apologist they need to be. Other than I'm saying you don't have to be a Bible theologian, a Hebrew scholar, to be able to talk about the generosity of God. You just have to say, this is how I've experienced it. God's renewed my heart this way. If you would have known me back then, you could know me and you knew me now. There's a way to talk about and to share the heart of God. But here's probably the most significant thing, and this is the most signature feature, is that I think it gives us a way to reproduce our faith into another. This is how we can raise children. This is how we can disciple another, is we have a way to be able to impart a living faith. Most people are practicing church by coming together and wanting to be transformed. And all I'm saying is to be transformed, we have to be in a constant and ready practice. But I don't think we actually get to experience true transformation without the input and the assistance of another. That's why one of our rhythms is apprenticing. The recovery ministry or recovery field would call it sponsorship. Bible would refer to as discipleship. I chose tradesman language because I think there's something about both a laboratory and a lecture where we begin to rub off on one another and learn to figure this out more and more. Uh, Maybe some of you grabbed a card. Maybe you've heard about us talking about this have to share one. Um, This is simply a way for us to just have an experiment, uh, kind of a faith initiative. I would encourage you to People would say, what is have to share one? It's a great talking point, but um, it's a great practice point. And so the point of it is, is um, in Luke chapter three, he goes through, John calls all these people out and he says, um, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, which I've typically looked at repentance as something I just say I'm sorry for and move on. Except he says, produce fruit with keeping with repentance. And all the good church folks said, what do you mean, John? Um, what does that actually look like? And he says, well, if any of you've got two shirts, give one away. If you've got extra food, feed the hungry. Oh, like, doesn't sound real complex after that. You're like, that sounds actually pretty simple. So what we're trying to do is if you find yourself with extra clothing, extra furniture, maybe you find yourself with um, extra pantry items or toiletry items, or um, we're just saying gather some of them up. And um, what I encourage you to do is just make your car, your trunk, maybe part of a mobile pantry so that if it's an opportunity presents itself, whether it be on the way home, if it's extra cold and you have a, a, a new you know, an old sweater or winter coat, you can actually meet the need. Rather than dropping it off at the Goodwill and giving it away anonymously, you can actually be a part of meeting that need. If you see someone actually hungry, you can actually provide some kind of grocery items. It's not rocket science, but it it seems pretty simple, right? Uh, Practice becomes the new deep, even if it feels a little uncomfortable. So here, friends, 
is what we're doing. Next weekend, we are meeting with our tribes. Tribes are places where we gather in kind of neighborhoods and um, uh, we want to just make this a, a practice weekend so that we can have a lecture and a laboratory. And so we're just looking to identify maybe some homeless folks or some um, refugees who are living off of food stamps and um, different opportunities that we have to connect with people. And um, we're going to meet up in the morning and then we're going to just go out in small groups, maybe visit some of the families that we're working to coordinate this week and look to distribute. Um, and here's what I would say. If any of this sounds uncomfortable, I totally get it. It is for me. Um, but here's what I like to remind people of. It's always better if I get to be uncomfortable in community because then I'm not alone, right? So uh, I would just encourage you to join up with your tribe, but to help us identify needs that we can meet. Maybe some of you have just a heart for elderly. Um, one of the, the, the issues du jour, uh, the causes of today, is not the elderly. We have a whole forgotten aging generation that lacks for really good conversation. Um, I think there's an opportunity to visit some retirement communities and to be able to come alongside people and hear their story. So here's what I want to do tonight. Uh, I want to ask, um, uh, I just want to tell you one little story and then I'm going to have um, the guys come up and maybe you can close this out. We have a couple of worship songs. Uh, I have a new friend that's here tonight that I just want to introduce. His name is Pastor Jonathan and his wife Grace. Um, Jonathan, will you come up? Because I want to just ask you to pray for us tonight. Um, you, you can just come by yourself. You don't have to come. Just come up. I want you to pray for us. But I just want to real quickly, I want you guys to meet Pastor Jonathan. He came, uh, originally he's from uh, Burma, which is now called Myanmar. And, uh, and, he is, and, and that's a Buddhist country. But his dad was a pastor and his grandfather uh, was a, a deacon there. And because uh, he ran off to India, uh, but he came back and he led his whole village uh, to Christ. And so generationally, and, and so he was there, and it's a military rule, right? Uh, but eventually they fled on foot to Malaysia. And if you're geographically challenged as I am, you have to realize that there's a whole country called Thailand that you have to walk through to get there. So they walked for 10 days, he and his wife and children, and they ended up in Malaysia. And they were there for a better part of 10 years, but after about two years, they realized uh, in this Muslim country that a lot of children are, are getting hurt and killed and no one's doing anything. So they started a boarding school for refugee children. And, uh, and um, it started with five kids in a classroom. And I said, well, what, you know, did it get kind of big, like, you know, like 60 people? He says, oh, no, we had like 200 kids. Uh, and so uh, he and his wife did this uh, for eight years. And then four and a half months ago, they ended up in Austin. And in fact, they're, they're in a community and they found some friends that they had taught and had been a part of their boarding school there, mm -hmm. just being salt and light. So I thought, man, I'm finishing a message. I'm talking about what it means to be the church in its sent quality. Will you pray for us tonight, just in closing, about how we can respond to God's great commission as being sent into all the world? Will you do that for us tonight? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. God is very good. So today is my first time in the United local church in my first attend in the church here. Oh yeah, I should say this. Uh, sorry. Yes. Yeah, we yeah. we talked for two hours and we ran out of time uh, when we went to lunch. But um, he says, uh, "Would you could I come to your church?" And they came to our, our arcade event, our one year party down at the arcade. 
And then the next week was Super Bowl. And he says, but when do you, uh, like, when does the church meet? I said, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to talk about Jesus and open the Bible next week. We'll actually do that and have some worship. But uh, he's never been to an American church. So this is a historic day because where he's been, the church is illegal to meet in public. So they meet in homes uh, and they do illegal baptisms and they rent out a hall and call it a family reunion. Uh, And so this is his church. I said, he can sing out loud and he can pray out loud because this is legal here today. So anyway, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to pray for you and then you pray for us. And then we got one song on our way out the door. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just pray for Jonathan and his family. I thank you uh, for the testimony that is his life and how you've um, not just preserved him and protected him, but that you have used him all along the way to be displaced and then to um, proclaim your name. Uh, to to be uh, to sent running, but then to find people in need. And so I thank you for the testimony of his life Amen. and how you have been faithful in him. And I just pray that, Lord, you would open doors for work. I pray that you would open doors for him to have gainful employment that would, in a way, that would open opportunities to share your love and your light. I pray that you would open opportunities for his Lord. family to be able to have uh, a place of their own to stay at. Uh, I pray that this would start to feel like home as they become more at home with you and that you would expand his territory and give him influence uh, among the, uh, the immigrant and the refugee community that he might be light and love and truth and hope. And so uh, we pray that for him and, and help us to be aware. Uh, and, and, and I pray that you would um, make us more aware of how you want to use us and participate and, and partner with him. So we pray that in the name of Jesus. And then you pray for us now. In Burmese? You, you, can you pray in English or you pray in Yeah, Burmese. Oh, in Burmese? Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, Hallelujah. Namarotu Bechi Mumbare. Dine Mission Hill Chess at the Kuroshin Sutong Biba E. Piashin di Mission Hill Chesco Piashin County Piro Muba. Oh, Piashin Namaro Otai. Kuroshin Lambda puts on the Holy Spirit. Kuro Namaro Bechi Mumba E. Oh, thank you for. Uh, the Holy Spirit, God, mm. oh, I want mm-hmm. to pray for him. Mission Hilchest, every members, and uh, we grow up in the Spirit. Mm. We grow up in faith more mm. and more. We share each other. We share the gospel to everywhere in the world, Lord Jesus. Oh, thank you. I bless this church in the name of our Lord Jesus. Mm. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. Make sure you get to meet Jonathan and his wife, Grace, before you go tonight. Let's stand and we're going to sing together on our way out.